Greetings, friends. It's the weekend of Sunday, January the 17th. It's Martin Luther King weekend. We are continuing in our look at the Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. We're looking at Colossians, and today we're going to focus really on just a couple of verses. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 of Colossians. I'm going to read that from the, uh, the ESV version the preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things together. Let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Charles Wesley's phrase from Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we just sang it not too long ago. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. It captures the central truth of our faith, of, of our faith in Christ. Since the appearance of Jesus on this earth 2,000 plus years ago, Christians have believed that the man called Jesus of Nazareth is and was God the creator, that the eternal son lived, dwelt in the human body, thus veiled in flesh the Godhead see. You see, every other doctrine of Christianity flows out of that great, great truth. And if it's denied, well, then one has denied the heart of Christian faith and has embraced heresy. And and here are the dramatic words of Paul. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creations, verse 15 of chapter 1. And that plainly states what, what Wesley captured in his phrase, veiled in flesh, the guy had see. You see, Paul brings this truth boldly to the Colossian believers for a couple of basic reasons. As we've already seen in this letter, he's, he's very concerned that these new Christians, that they begin to grow up, that they, that they start to mature. They, may not, they may, must not remain immature believers. They're born again, but still filled with, with the frailty and the foolishness of, of the flesh. They must grow up. They need to become exemplary, compassionate believers, uh, forsaking apathy and hostility and becoming whole people, much like we are to do. And Paul is well aware that they're in danger of losing that clear vision of Jesus, of getting distracted, much like we are. And that was the nature of the Colossian heresy, which attacked the person of Jesus. They were in danger of losing a proper sense of the profound power and the eminence of Jesus Christ in their, in their own world. And this passage calls us back to the fact that of, of who Jesus is. Simply, he is in charge of the universe. <laughs> Simply. He is in charge of the universe. The second reason why Paul includes this is his own unforgettable experience that he had on the Damascus Road, the road to Damascus. Young Saul of Tarsus, he he believed that Jesus of Nazareth was was a a troublemaker, a a rabble rouser who was 
causing a great deal of issues in Israel. And Saul considered him nothing more than a, a, a deliberate blasphemer who was claiming things about himself for which he should be put to death. And as an ardent Pharisee, Paul hated the name of Jesus. And then came the experience on the road to Damascus, there in the dust of the road surrounding this blinding light of glory. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So he cries out in amazement, right, and in wonder, who are, who are you, Lord? And, and in the passage we're looking at today, Paul states that the answer he found to his own question, he says, Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the creator of all things. That, that event in Damascus or going to Damascus is what changed Paul's life. And this passage is truly astounding. It's, it's an amazing claim. In these brief phrases, Paul points out Jesus' nature as God, his work as creator, and his continuing relationship to the worlds that he made. So, so as we look, let's look at detail of, of, of these claims. What does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Have you ever heard the little story of the little boy who was drawing pictures on the floor one day as his mother was working? And she said to him, what are you, what are you drawing? He said, well, I'm drawing a picture of God. But no one knows what God looks like, she said. Well, they will when I get through, the boy replied. It's a rather profound truth in that story when it is applied to Jesus. It is as though that little baby lying in the manger in Bethlehem, which we just celebrated some month ago, is, is a picture being drawn for us. It would, it would be proper to say of that little baby that when he finishes his life's work, men will know what God is like. That is what Jesus did. And so today, when we come to Jesus, we discover that in a remarkable way, we have also come into the presence of God. We know God personally and intimately. And that has always been the central claim of a conversion into Christianity. This sentence also includes a second phrase that's, that's very descriptive, the firstborn of all creation. So what does that mean? It it's most frequently translated firstborn in the sense of heir, the owner, the possessor of creation. And, and certainly the meaning it conveys, and that is the meaning it conveys here, Dr. Carl Henry's answer, it should be translated, he says, the, the primeval creator of all created things. Jesus is the one who possesses as heir or owner all things. This sense of the firstborn as owner or possessor well, it's a concept that's, that's supported in the Old Testament. Esau was one of the twin sons of Isaac, was born first. Therefore, he had the right of the firstborn to inherit the estate of his father. But through some strange events, Jacob, the other twin, tricked his father into conferring that blessing upon him. And so he stole from Esau by trickery the right of the firstborn, yet the act was honored by God. The, the right to be firstborn was transferred from Esau to Jacob, and Jacob became the heir of the promises of God to Isaac. So, so we must understand that the one born first is not necessarily the quote-unquote firstborn. Jacob himself later had sons, uh, one of whom was Joseph, who in turn had two sons whom he named Manasseh and Ephraim. And at the end of his life, Jacob went down to Egypt to visit his son Joseph. And Joseph brought his two boys before him, Manasseh, the firstborn, and Ephraim, the younger. And Joseph played, 
placed Manasseh under Jacob's right hand and Ephraim under his left hand so that Manasseh would receive the blessing of the firstborn. But Jacob did a very unusual thing. We're not told why, but for some strange reason, known only to the Lord and, and, and himself, perhaps, Jacob crossed his hands and laid his left hand on Manasseh, the one born first, and his right hand upon Ephraim. Thus, Ephraim became the quote-unquote firstborn though he was not the one born first. By means of a cross, the right of the firstborn was transferred to the younger son. This is an example of how marvelously scripture handles events. There is a significance in even the slightest of details. It's why we can spend our entire life studying the scripture and never understand it all. There is significance here. So, so we might rightly apply this title to Jesus as one, as not the one born first of all creation, but the owner, the possessor of creation. Paul goes on to describe the work of Jesus in verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And that verse clearly reveals that Jesus could not be part of God's creation for all created things. All created things were created by him. He is then not a part of that, quote unquote, all. Notice the words by him and for him. He was the agent of creation and the purpose of it as well. The whole of the cosmos was made for him. This is what Paul also declares in Philippians, that the time is coming when at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The realistic thing to do today is to live with that knowledge in our surroundings, in our circumstances, in our world, remembering that Jesus not only created all things, but he is also the reason for it all. Creation, of course, involves the work of the whole trinity. It, it's, it is right to say that the Father willed there should be a creation. All, all, all the initiatory movements of history began with the Father. He willed it. The Son then planned it. He pro- programmed it, designed it, even to the slightest detail as its architect, as its designer. And the Spirit is the executor. He carried it out. He made it actually appear according to the plan and the program of the Son. C.S. Lewis has has a comment on this, and, and it's it's I think it's I think it's pertinent to what we're saying. So listen to Lewis's words. If we open such books as Grimm's fairy tales or the Italian epics, we find ourselves in a world of miracles so diverse that they can hardly be classified. Beasts turn into men and men into beasts or trees. Trees talk, ships become goddesses, and a magic ring can cause tables richly spread with food to appear in solitary places. Now, if such things really happened, they would, I suppose, show that nature was being invaded. But they would show that she was being invaded by an alien power. The, the fitness of the Christian miracles and their difference from these mythological miracles lies in the fact that they show an invasion by a power which is not alien. They are what might be expected to happen when nature is invaded, not simply by a God, lowercase, but by the God of nature, 
by a power which is outside nature's jurisdiction, not as a foreigner, but as sovereign. They proclaim that he who has come is not merely a king, but the king, nature's kings and ours, end quote. So that's what Paul is proclaiming here when he says that Jesus is the creator of all things. Things were made by him. And now as the verse goes on to say, that includes more than merely the material universe around us, more than stars and galaxies and superstars and planets and solar systems or even trees and grass, mountains, seas. It includes the earth. Paul also says it, but it's heaven as well, both the visible and the invisible. It would, it would also include all forces. Electricity was invented by Jesus, not as a man, but as the eternal son before the creation of the world. It would include radiation, magnetism, and the, and the peculiar and mysterious dance of electrons from one level of energy to another within an atom that makes light. All this was the design of the eternal son of God. But not only forces, but concepts and attitudes as well. Grace, mercy, truth, love, life itself. Jesus is the originator of all life. And as Paul specifies here, a whole, a whole pantheon of invisible things and their visible counterparts and earthly government, thrones and rulers and powers and authorities, all were created by him. The Colossian heresy here becomes visible in our modern experience as well. The Colossians began to believe because of Greek teachers among them that the universe consisted of a hierarchy of angels, that one must begin down at the bottom with sort of the raunchy, unpleasant angels and, and work your way up through the whole hierarchy to, to the good angels and finally to God. And from that idea has come the Eastern concept of reincarnation, for that too was part of the heresy being preached and taught in Colossae. And this is what Paul is, is working to correct. He is telling the Colossians, Jesus is above all angels. You're, you are freed from the bondage to these lesser beings when you see the true authority and the power of the risen Savior of the Lord. Bishop Lightfoot, who wrote, in the last century captivates this uh, in a paraphrase of Paul's words. Paul is, this is his words. Paul is saying, you dispute much about the successive grades of angels. You distinguish each grade by its special title. You can tell how each order was generated from the preceding. You assign to each its proper degree of worship. Meanwhile, you have ignored and have degraded Christ. I tell you, it is not so. He is first and foremost Lord of heaven and earth, far above all thrones or dominations all princedoms or powers far above every dignity and every potentate, whether earthly or heavenly, whether angel or demon or man, that evokes your reverence or excites your fear, end quote. That is the supremacy of our Lord in his own world. Nothing can make us more confident and enable us to speak boldly of our faith than to bear in mind the tremendous truth that Jesus is Lord. We say it at the beginning of our services. He is in charge of all life. Nothing can happen in history or in space without his permission. He rules over this present age right now. But creation is not only by him, it is also for him. It all operates for his honor and glory. A few decades ago, Albert Einstein announced to the world a new view of space. He declared that space is not, as we had thought for centuries, a linear concept extending outward in a straight line, but that it 
it was curved upon itself, that this, that it was the, this passage and proclaim, and, and, and that is what this passage is proclaiming as well. Though creation originated with the eternal son, who knows how that happened? It also converged, converges again toward him in this huge concentric cosmic cycle. It is totally under his control. He is the reason why all things have been made. Eventually, all the cosmos and all the events of history will find their place in, in the great purpose of the Father to honor and glorify the Son. That is what it is all about. And verse 17 declares in two amazing phrases just how Jesus controls space and history. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's verse 17. He is before all things, means he is outside his own creation. He was there first. This describes his eternity as the son of God. C.S. Lewis has, has pointed out he is over creation as king and a sovereign, not subject to it or part of it, but intimately related to it. And then when Paul uses the phrase, all things by him hold together, he's speaking of, of our Lord's power to, sus to sustain and to prevent breakdown. The scientists who work on, on who worked on the great linear accelerator at Stanford University trying to smash the atom apart know that it takes an incredible amount of power. Something, something holds the atom together with enormous, incredible power. That power, according to the word of God, both here in Colossians and in the letter to the Hebrews, is vested in Jesus. He has the authority to rule as sovereign. He has the power to sustain because he is eternal. The Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper, who was also the president of the Netherlands, put it this way. When Jesus looks at his universe from his exalted throne at the right hand of the Father, and he sees the great galaxies whirling in space, the planets and the people upon this planet, and all the minute details of life here, including the details of our individual lives, there is nothing he sees anywhere of which he cannot say, mine. The most astonishing phenomenon today is to see men and women who work with the physical universe, who, who intimately observe the beauty, the order, and the power inherent in the natural world, as well as the world of humanity, yet who fail to see the power behind it all. The ordered intelligence that possesses and originates all things. One of the most profound incidents in the gospel is a story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. This first century, we'll call him yuppie, expensively dressed, very wealthy, young and handsome, knelt at the feet of this apparent peasant from Galilee and said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looked into the heart of that young man and saw the hunger and the emptiness of it. Wealth had brought him no lasting pleasure. Jesus saw his anguish and the desire for, for something more. He tested him as to whether he understood the law. And when he saw the, that the young man was in earnest, that he was sincere about finding the secret of life, he told him to do a very unusual thing. Go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. We usually focus upon the first part of that command. Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. Some say that what Jesus is teaching is that it is that 
it is wrong to be wealthy. But this is answered by the fact that he had friends among the wealthy of his own day, yet he never rebuked them for their wealth. That, that's not the issue of the story. What Jesus is saying is, your money keeps you from seeing what you desperately need. So get rid of it because it's blocking what you really need in life. And then he makes clear what that is. Come and follow me. What the young man lacked was a king. He had no final authority beyond himself, no cause to which he could give even his life. He had no anchor in life. And as I think of the world in which we live today in 2021, surely this is the reason for this terrible sense of lostness among people. We are a generation adrift. We have thrown out all of the absolutes and found ourselves adrift on this tossing ocean of life. No one has an anchor anymore. And what mankind desperately need is a king, a God, an authority, an anchor to cling to. And this then the central truth of our faith and one that makes for strength in the life of the believer is this truth. And Jesus is found the center of life. He is that anchor because he is the image of the invisible God, the creator of all things who is before all things and holds all things in his hand of power. He is Lord. Amen. I want to close with reading Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And God bless.